Okay, hello everybody. Today is Monday, another Zodiac Monday. Welcome to the show. Firstly, I hope everybody had a good weekend. And just a couple of quick announcements before we begin. The first one is that, as a reminder, this show is always available for free downloads at Launchpad One. There's a link to that in the description box. You can download the audio version of this program as a pure podcast. Take it on the go anywhere and anyhow. If you would like to download the video version, you can use YouTube Premium, but that one you have to pay for. Launchpad One is free. And another great way to help out with all of these efforts, in addition to just listening, is to go over to the buymeacoffee.com page. There is a link to that in the description box as well. And if anyone makes a contribution to help support the show, they will get a shout-out on Zodiac Mondays. And all contributions will be spent on efforts for the program, such as buying equipment or true crime books to talk about with you guys. And as you heard in the introduction, this program is also partnered with Astro Psych 400. That's another YouTube channel that I run. And that is the home of the Podcast for Sleep. And there is a new episode of the Podcast for Sleep available on Astro Psych 400. And I invite you to like and subscribe to both of these channels. Some people were saying that they use this program, Black Box Online Radio, as a way to fall asleep at night. So I thought, why not create a podcast that is specifically designed to help people fall asleep? And one more time, you can get that on the channel, Astro Psych 400, as well as a few bonus episodes that came out this week. And the reason for that was I did an episode on Black Box Online Radio just talking about Astro Psych 400, saying that the podcast for sleep has come back. And it only took about five minutes to record, and I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to do a couple more of those. But um, as far as Astro Psych is going, the podcast for sleep should mostly just be the only episode that will be coming out on that channel regularly, and that is usually released on the weekends. One more time, Astro Psych 400. And as far as announcements about this channel are concerned, I have started a new book discussion on Wrecking Crew, by John Farrock, which is about the case of Stephen Avery, made famous by the Netflix docuseries Making a Murderer, which talks about the 2005 murder of Teresa Holbach. And I did several episodes this spring about Stephen Avery, as well as um, someone who was implicated in these crimes as well, his nephew Brendan Dassey. And I was provided a copy of the book Wrecking Crew by Jerome, who is a very big supporter of this show in uh, many different ways. And I thank him greatly. And I started a multi-part book discussion that will be coming out on Fridays for the Anything Goes segments. And I do apologize to you guys because normally I try to do Black Box Online Radio three times a week. Over the past um, two weeks, I've been more or less all over the map, literally. And I wasn't able to put out the Wednesday programs. Recently on Wednesdays, I've been doing a show about the Long Island serial killer, and this Wednesday will be the conclusion of that series for the time being. I'm sure I'll get back to that material in the near future. However, I would like to wrap up the discussions that I've had over the last several months. And on Wednesdays, I will be doing a regular segment about the Texarkana Moonlight Murders from 1946. So if you have, if you have not subscribed to this channel yet, there are a lot of true crime discussions that will be happening talking about the Zodiac Killer, the Long Island Serial Killer, the Moonlight Murders, as well as uh, Making a Murderer and Stephen Avery. A lot of um, ideas will be shared and doing some book discussions. So I invite you guys to participate in the comments section as well. If you have anything to say at all about any of the cases, feel free to write in. And mostly, most people 
who listen to this program, I see what you guys say. You're very respectful, and anything that is genuinely contributing to the discussions is welcome and appreciated. So to begin with some of the Zodiac Killer news, there is a new video out on the channel True Crime Oracle, one which I had never heard of before. And I saw that some people were sharing this one that openly called out Tom Voigt of ZodiacKiller.com to answer questions about the Zodiac Killer's DNA. The Zodiac Killer was a serial killer who operated in California in the 1960s, but what makes this case so different is the amount of letters that were allegedly written by this person who committed the murders and phone calls and a message on the car door at Lake Berryessa composing the Zodiac Killer cryptograms. So, what really is the status of the DNA? Because back in 1969 and 1970, DNA was not really a thing, so people would not have known that they were going to be leaving DNA behind, and DNA heavily, heavily contributed to catching the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, who was currently in prison now at the time of this recording. But what is the real status of um, the Zodiac DNA, and um, was person... Uh, who called out Tom Voigt in the right or in the wrong. Normally, I think that it's perfectly fine to call out somebody by name, as we said in a previous episode, if you provide reasons, which they did. However, I was only disappointed with the fact that I think a lot of the material and the questions and the um, entire premise of their video has mostly been explored here on Black Box Online Radio. Do they have the Zodiac Killer's DNA? unsure. I mean, I've talked about it for perhaps more than an hour of the last three Zodiac Killer news reports. Yes, DNA has been extracted from Zodiac correspondences. And does any of it belong to the killer? We are not sure, but the DNA that has been extracted is coming from places that could have easily been contaminated, and it, and it almost certainly was if multiple pieces of DNA are being extracted from, like, touch DNA on a stamp, and it's not matching the same person. Like, if these different DNA samples don't match each other and they don't match the suspects that have been tested against it, then it's highly possible that all of it is contamination, or maybe it's not. So DNA has been extracted from the letters, and it doesn't belong to the killer. We are still uncertain of that. But it almost appears that it is highly unlikely that it is saliva DNA. And the real thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about was I finally got around to watching the ABC show from 2002, which did the full expose on DNA and um, talking about the Zodiac Killer suspects. And it was an episode that featured Diane Sawyer and John Quinones, and it is available on Tom Voigt's channel. And I wanted to do that one because... Somebody had asked me the question, which Zodiac correspondences were used in the extraction of the DNA? And um, I did find an article that was a write-up after this ABC show, but like they, they did the ABC program, and then there, of course, is a news article responding to it that was also put out by ABC. And they listed one of them as the November 8th, 1969 correspondence. And again, this is from the envelope, as opposed to any document inside of the envelope. And the three suspects that were that they were examining in this episode were Arthur Lee Allen, perhaps the most famous Zodiac killer suspect, 
as well as Shel Cavale, the suspect of Micro Delhi, author of In the Shadow of Mount Diablo and Hunt for Zodiac, and Charles Clifton Collins. Firstly, I need to apologize because I think in a previous episode I almost certainly called him Charles Clifton Curtis, and I really could not find much about him. I wanted to do an enormous segment on this guy Charles Clifton Collins, but I really couldn't find that much in any particular direction. On the ABC program, they were trying to use him as an example of someone who stated that his father was the Zodiac, and they had the son of Collins on the program. But I think, though, as far as the DNA goes, we are actually achieving somewhat of a consensus among everybody, for the most part, until this True Crime Oracle video came out, that there is DNA, but we don't know if it belongs to the killer or not, and maybe that's as far as we'll get in the general public. But we also need to bear in mind that these television programs that are put out on networks like ABC or even some of the other ones, that when they talk about the um, Zodiac Killer on the History Channel, they're primarily done for entertainment. And I was discussing this with Mike Rodelli, and he said that, um, firstly, that was a very disingenuous thing for the ABC show to do if they weren't completely certain that the DNA came from the killer because they presented that to the public that they have the killer's DNA. And maybe they do not, so they weren't completely honest. But then he also went on to say that maybe ABC was not the true origin of that misinformation, and it was the San Francisco PD because what they wanted to do was they wanted to see if the Zodiac Killer was still alive. Back in 2002, there's a high chance that he could have been in his 60s or 70s, depending on which suspect you would be thinking about, and that an arrest could have been made, and they were trying to bait the killer into doing something or send some type of false, misleading message to the killer. And the final point that he shared with me, and Mike Rodelli is featured in that uh, video, mind you. As I said, you can watch the 2002 ABC program on Tom Voigt's channel. He said that it was just absolutely devastating to his reputation because more or less a nationwide TV program is saying that, nope, your suspect was not the Zodiac Killer, but really the DNA hasn't helped anything in this particular case. They're saying that Arthur Lee Allen was exonerated because of DNA, but well, I mean, it doesn't seem like they can genuinely 100% say that whatever DNA they were looking at actually came from the Zodiac Killer. So, well, I'll just give one final note on that. With Arthur Lee Allen, he also provided handwriting samples, as well as um, they looked at the side palm print from his hand, also known as writer's palm, and um, they also... Uh, allegedly have some partial fingerprints, right? So they compared all of that stuff, and they said that that's not Allen. Not to mention that Arthur Lee Allen does not bear any strong resemblance to the descriptions of the person who was seen at the Blue Rock Springs shooting on uh, July 4th of 1969, as well as the Presidio Heights shooting on October 11th of 1969, where witnesses actually saw the Zodiac Killer, Mike Majot, who survived the Blue Rock Springs shooting, said that the perpetrator was about 5 feet 8 inches tall, and Arthur Lee Allen was 6 feet tall. But then you have the Presidio Heights shooting of the person who has a much more 
triangular face, for lack of a better term, and Arthur Lee Allen is a very moon-faced individual. Now, all Mike Bajot said after the Blue Rock Spring shooting, as I recall from the police reports, was that he could not see any details of the killer's face, and yes, killer, because he killed Darlene Farron, but he could say that his face was really big, yes, Arthur Lee Allen has a big face, but, I mean, somebody just openly asked this question, how on earth is, or if Arthur Lee Allen is the Zodiac, how on earth, because how can he be five foot eight and six feet tall at the same time? And that is a major discrepancy that is found just in the Zodiac examinations because the Lake Berryessa stabber, the person who attacked Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard after the Blue Rock Springs shooting, was estimated to have been six feet tall. So you have Mike Michaud saying this guy's five foot eight, very beefy, but not fat, and um, he can't make out any details, but he's a Caucasian male. And then you have the Lake Berryessa Stabber, who is six feet tall, wearing a black costume. And then you have the Presidio Heights shooter, who is estimated to have been five foot eight by the Robbins kids. And he, um, of course, is the person that you're seeing in those composite sketches. So one possibility is that just some of the witnesses are mistaken. One possibility is that there were multiple killers and that the same person who committed the shootings did not do the Lake Berryessa stabbing. And then, as other people have pointed out very easily, the Lake Berryessa stabber, who was estimated to have been six feet tall, was wearing the hooded costume, and Playtime was actually the one who said this in the comments section, that the hooded costume could have added three inches of height alone, because, I mean, that black hood could have gone up at least three inches above the person's actual head, plus wearing shoes, standing on uneven ground. That's how the person was estimated to have been six feet tall. You guys can weigh in in the comment section down below and think about anything that you would like to say. Now, I was um, really trying to find some more things about Charles Clifton Collins because he is a Zodiac Killer suspect whom I haven't really discussed before on the channel. And instead, I found an article on ZodiacKillerFacts.com that was talking all about people who are accusing their father of being the Zodiac Killer, and it is called Zodiac Daddy Issues. One more time, uh, ZodiacKillerFacts.com. I hope Michael Butterfield doesn't mind if I read this article off in its entirety, but I think he's getting a little bit of advertising, so we'll call that a fair trade-off. But it says, More than 20 years ago, the publication of the sensational and largely fictional book Zodiac inspired a legion of amateur sleuths who claimed that they had identified the Zodiac, holding press conferences, peddling books, accusing suspects, and telling tall tales. Things really have, cha have changed since then. Actually, nothing has changed at all. Yeah, I even got ahead of myself. I was about to say, things have changed since then. No, they haven't. But yes, nothing has changed at all. The years since 2007 have been a nightmare for anyone who cares about the case and the truth. And it's more than clear why those in law enforcement did not welcome the production of David Fincher's revisionist history film, Zodiac, a film largely based on the fictional book by Robert Graysmith. The effect of the film has been much like the effect on its source material and the way it had on the case and society more than 20 years ago, meaning the film and its opportunistic exploitation of the many already debunked myths about the case only serve to inspire others with even less shame. And when society praises and rewards those who exploit the case with no regard for the truth, the message is clear. 
exploiting the Zodiac case for your own fame and profit at the expense of the truth and the victims is perfectly acceptable behavior. To be fair, it's not as if the makers of Zodiac invented the process of exploitation and exploiting the case. That began almost as soon as the first victims took their last breaths more than four decades ago. Now it's been five decades. This is, after all, America, where the mantra often seems to be, who cares as long as it doesn't affect me, translated into the simple everyday language, when something bad happens to me, it's tragedy. When something bad happens to somebody else, it's entertainment. This logic has fueled the recent wave of those coming forward with claims that they have identified the Zodiac Killer. Years ago, a debate broke out on the old true crime message board regarding the publication of the book, Daddy Was the Black Dahlia. Janice Knowlton told a story in which her father had not only been the infamous Hollywood murderer of Elizabeth Short, but was also part of an underground sex ring that served the Hollywood elite. The book was written by Michael Newton and caused a splash in the media, and Knowlton did her best to earn her 15 minutes of fame, peddling her bizarre and wholly unsubstantiated tales as much as possible. Her campaign led to the message boards where she and Newton defended the book against the crowd of skeptics, who viewed their efforts as little more than a shameless opportunity that only further muddied the story of the Black Dahlia killing. As one who had read the book and studied the claims by the author and Knowlton, I raised the questions regarding the veracity of the claims as well as the motives behind the book. In my opinion, it was clear that Knowlton was mentally ill and that Newton was morally corrupt and eager to exploit the woman for whatever she was worth with little regard for her emotional well-being. In short, it was a quick buck, but Newton did his best to justify his work and boost the sagging credibility of his co-author. No matter how bizarre or unsubstantiated her claims may have been, everyone seemed happy to ignore the obvious reality as long as Knowlton didn't start accusing little green men from Mars. My exchanges with both characters left me convinced that the entire episode was a sad commentary on the world. The whole book was a total crapola, and Knowlton had no credibility whatsoever, but that kind of talk just interfered with the business of selling books and making money. Who wants to stop and admit that the whole story is pure nonsense when there are talk shows to do, books to sign, and contracts in the works, movie rights to sell, crapola sells, and people who sell crapola are not interested in selling substance. And the first introduction here is, I would refer to something that I was discussing with the Zodiac Manson connection, and it involves an interview that I heard with the former Manson family member, Red, when she simply stated that no one wants to hear that something is untrue. When people are hearing all these wild stories about the Manson family, or in this case, the Black Dahlia or the Zodiac Killer, this is one point that I do agree with. No one wants to hear that something isn't true, and I think that there is this certain desire among people that really is in the gray area where they just simply want to know what this person is saying, no matter how wild. I've talked about it a million times on Black Box Online Radio when um, when I've talked about far-out Zodiac killer theories from people who have somewhat questionable credibility. And even though I always try to defend it by saying, well, you're giving everybody a chance, and it's an unsolved case, so we don't actually know, and who am I to deny this person the opportunity to talk about their Zodiac killer theory no matter what, 
there really is this certain um, just curiosity that people have with far out and extreme ideas. And before I ever started talking about true crime on YouTube, yeah, I did this in the political world, the religious world. You just want to hear what somebody believes, even if it's just so, so extremely different than the way you believe. And I think that a lot of us who follow mysteries like the Zodiac Killer one just have that curiosity. So it can be both good and bad. Maybe sometimes there really is some gray area that we have to sift through. But uh, back to the article about the Black Dahlia book. After Knowlton faded from the spotlight, no one stopped to care about how she had been affected by the entire episode. The media machine chewed her up and spit her out on cue. And when she was no longer profitable, she disappeared. But then she died in an apparent suicide. Knowlton once again became marketable. And on cue, the media returned to milk the most out of her breakdown and demise. Today, the Janice Knowlton saga is just a sad footnote in the never-ending spectacle that is the Black Dahlia story. This legendary murder case has also fallen victim to the distortions of Hollywood many times over, including director Brian De Palma's fictional film. Now others have come forward to accuse their own dead fathers of the crime, and the media machine gobbles them up and marches mindlessly forward in search of more mentally ill attention seekers or morally challenged morons to consume. Now, I would like to say something in defense of the filmmakers, whether you're talking about that uh, movie the um, about the Black Dahlia, or even the David Fincher Zodiac film, which Michael Butterfield was talking about at the beginning of this article. I absolutely do not fault those guys, meaning the directors or the screenwriters, if there is any type of zodiac buzz that comes in america after the david fincher film was put out like reinvigorating the general public's interest with the case or getting more people fascinated with the material or just marketing it in a particular way and you can criticize those movies all you want and say oh well they weren't a hundred percent historically accurate it's a movie and have you ever heard the expression that the movie isn't always the same as the book and when it comes to a film that has been done by Hollywood, or even if it's done by a European or international studio, they always have creative liberties. Because you'll often see the term, based on a true story. And some very rarely you see a true story. When people who are filmmakers are genuinely saying that their story is 100% accurate, that this movie does not contain a single inaccuracy. And sometimes you see that, but not often. And the reason why is because that is one of the few times when they are completely admitting that they are putting this on for entertainment. Yes, you watch the Zodiac film from David Fincher, it is meant to entertain you, and it isn't meant to be some type of pure retelling of the police reports. However, Robert Graysmith's 1986 book has no excuse for all the inaccuracies that are in it. Because what Graysmith did was he tried to present that as pure fact, saying that this is a true crime book, not a false crime book or a medium true crime book. And um, I love when Drew Beeson uses the word Graysmithing. And um, 
Thomas Horan has talked about this a lot as well, when the way that Graysmith misrepresented the facts of the case in the book Zodiac from 1986 was he would take an idea that is half true and half false, like half a sentence is true and the other half is false, and another book reviewer said he splices them together. And if you read the reviews of Robert Graysmith's books, no matter which one it is, whether it's uh, the Unabomber book or the um, Girl in Alfred Hitchcock's Shower or... Um, Maybe The Laughing Gorilla, although I confess I haven't read that one yet. But you read the book reviews, they always accuse him of this. They say that he is taking two ideas that don't belong together, and he splices them together. The Anthrax Killer book that he did one, Amerithrax, absolutely accused of that stuff. And perhaps Graysmith should have stuck to being a cartoonist. But even with that... At the beginning of the book, Time 17, by Gareth Penn, he gets accused, Graysmith that is, of plagiarizing a cartoon from the Vancouver Sun. So, Graysmith seems like somewhat of a sketchy guy all around. However, I do not see any reason for Graysmith to have done that other than he wanted to sell books. Was it dishonest? Yes. Was it immoral and unethical? Yes, but I don't believe any of these other wild theories about him. All I see is some guy who is perhaps doing some very overly exaggerated book selling, and that's bad, and that's bad, because he presents them as facts. And I think that filmmakers who are doing things like making a drama or a true crime movie, if anything, they're telling the stories on film, but you're fully aware that the Zodiac film from 2007 is just that. It's a drama. It's a crime movie. And I think that most of us understand that, but... And I don't even think Michael Butterfield is being too harsh on those guys for that reason. I think it's for something else that it allowed people to start thinking about the case, and um, both of these cases, the Zodiac and the Black Dahlia, and some wild ideas came about because of these films. But, I mean... If you're going to be making a movie that is a crime drama, it is only about telling a story on the film, and then you can go through some other sources if you want a more accurate version. But absolutely, we cannot expect a Hollywood movie to have any type of loyalty to a story. They're just trying to be entertaining. And back to the article. William Beeman called a press conference and disgraced himself back in the 1980s when he accused his brother Jack of the crime. Beeman sold a book about his amateur investigation for 50 bucks and later admitted that he was wrong. Blaine Blaine pestered every law enforcement agency in Northern California and more with his claim that his estranged friend, Richard Gajkowski, was the Zodiac. Blaine lived in an alternate universe where he was credible, and unfortunately for him, every one of the members of law enforcement he encountered lived in another universe where Blaine was a Brandied fruitcake, and never the two shall meet. You know, this really made me think of um, something really odd when I read that. Did you ever see the episode of The Simpsons when James L. Brooks offers Ned Flanders a, not a fruitcake, but a sponge cake with a brandy glaze, and it's supposed to be evil? Um, sorry. Gareth Penn launched his now decades-old campaign against Michael O'Hare, accusing the former Harvard lecturer 
of the Zodiac and other crimes using his own twisted interpretations of Zodiac writings and codes. Today, Gareth Penn is still at it, but in a fitting bit of irony, he now stands accused of the Zodiac crimes by someone who used the same dubious methods. No idea who that is. O'Hare recently wrote an online article about the saga almost 30 years after it began. And yes, um, that is one that is called Confessions of a Non-Serial Killer. And I did a response to that article that Michael O'Hare wrote for, what was it, the Washington Monthly? It's been uh, quite a while since I've done that one. There's an episode of that here on Black Box Online Radio called I'm Not a Serial Killer, dot, 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 or even a jerk, where I respond to that one if anyone wants to hear. Then there was the guy who murdered his friend in what he claimed was a Zodiac reenactment. The New York Zodiac copycat, or also known as the Zodiac 2, the Zodiac killer in Japan, the Zodiac copycat in North Carolina, and any number of other losers who were inspired by the glorification of the killer in his crimes. Harry Martin, with his 9,745-part series about the Zodiac involving People such as Robert Hunter, Charles Manson, Larry Kane, the Illuminati, the Freemasons, E. Howard Hunt, and Hangar 18. Charles Clifton Collins thought that his daddy might have been the Zodiac, and he had to go on national television before he faced the fact that doing so might have been a bad idea. Okay, so um, Charles Clifton Collins is talking about his father. This is like a junior-senior thing. And... When I was watching the ABC program that is talking about Collins as a Zodiac suspect, very clearly um, at the end when they tell him that his father is not the Zodiac killer, that the DNA did not match, he says that it's a sigh of relief. He did not want to think that his father was a Zodiac suspect. But um, I should also point out that I've also done one episode on E. Howard Hunt where I was discussing the book Bond of Secrecy, which is written by his son, St. John Hunt. Lots of things here on Black Box Online Radio. Please like and subscribe. And now we have even more lunatics adding their names to the list of funny fellows, comic men and clowns of private life, who have disgraced themselves in their efforts to exploit the unsolved mystery. Dennis Kaufman has been accused by his now deceased... Dennis Kaufman has been accusing his now deceased stepfather, Jack Torrance, of the Zodiac Crimes since 2000. Back then, his wild claims and tales did little to impress those who studied the case or in law enforcement. For some reason, those who are in charge at Sacramento's CBS 13 television station have taken on the role as Kaufman's unabashed PR firm. Reports from CBS 13 seem to be little more than talking points handed down by Kaufman and unverified by any of the so-called journalists at the station. Now, as I've talked a lot about Jack Torrance as a Zodiac killer suspect. I even included him in the debunking series. And I don't always agree with Tom Voigt of ZodiacKiller.com. But when I did the debunking episode on Jack Torrance, Tom Foyt wrote in to the comment section saying that Jack Torrance was a for-profit money grab by a crackhead named Dennis. End of story. Yes, yes, I don't see anything else other than that. And um, so, no credibility. Sandy Betts claimed that the Zodiac Killer had been following and harassing her for decades, and she even claimed that the killer had left his hooded costume in her car back in the 1960s. Yet, of course, Betts could not produce this costume when asked to do so. Howard Davis claimed that the Zodiac's hooded costume was discovered among the possessions of the so-called Manson family and then destroyed as part of an elaborate conspiracy to conceal the family's involvement in the Zodiac crimes. Howard Davis claimed that his ex-district attorney ex- 
brother-in-law told him about the nefarious plot. Apparently, the source was mistaken. More than three decades later, Dennis Kaufman discovered the Zodiac's hood in an old piece of stereo equipment among his stepfather's possessions. After he failed to convince the authorities that he had identified the Zodiac as Richard Gajkowski, Blaine Blaine produced a scan of a book which bore the signature of Paul Stein. According to Blaine, the book was found among Gajkowski's possessions. Of course, Blaine claims he no longer has the actual book. Deborah Perez produced a pair of glasses which she claimed belonged to her stepfather and that they had been taken from the Zodiac victim, Paul Stein. Despite what can only be ascribed as an undeniable lack of credibility, each of these theorists and accusers still managed to convince others that their claims have merit and these converts then worked to endorse and promote and protect the theorists. Deborah Perez garnered the assistance of a disbarred attorney who once worked for the infamous lawyer Melvin Belli. Perez's PR machine called a press conference and spoke of a film in the works. Previously, Perez had approached true crime writer William C. Phelps. Wait a second, is that that guy's real name? I thought his name was M. William Phelps. Well, William Phelps. With her story, in the hope that the author might embrace her tale as a potentially profitable endeavor. Phelps later wrote that he believed Perez and her story was credible, until she also claimed that she was the illegitimate daughter of JFK. Well, the, the suspect of Deborah Perez is named Guy Ward Hendrickson, and... He was born in 1915. I have an episode about him here on this channel. There's also an episode about him on the Zodiac Killer channel, which um, I also contribute a lot over there. And the Zodiac Killer channel has recently released the podcast, Serial Killer Z to A. The first season is talking all about the Zodiac. But in regards to Deborah Perez and her suspect, um, Guy Ward Hendrickson, I recall, I think the guy's name is M. William Phelps, actually, writing something that he doesn't believe Deborah Perez's story, but he recognizes that she was a genuine believer in it, because the family of Deborah Perez was very clear. They said that she's just making this up, she's doing this for money, and M. William Phelps responded by saying that, oh no, she believes this stuff, she's just mistaken. An interesting a contribution about the Zodiac Killer evidence was that Tom Voigt wrote something into the Zodiac Killer news report last week in the comments section when someone was talking about the Zodiac Killer stealing Paul Stein's glasses. As you see, Deborah Perez has also made the same claim that the Zodiac stole, stole Paul Stein's glasses and kept them as one of the additional trophies. Paul Stein was the taxi driver that was murdered on October 11th of 1969, and a piece of his bloody shirt was stolen, as well as his car keys and wallet, and... Now, he, now, some people think that Paul Stein's glasses were stolen and that the Zodiac didn't regularly wear glasses. The reason why you see the glasses in the composite sketch of the Zodiac is because he stole the glasses off of Paul Stein and put them on and walked away. So it's like a Clark Kent-style disguise. But what Tom Voigt wrote in was that Dave Tosky had answered questions on ZodiacKiller.com, I believe via an intermediary, but Dave Tosky had stated that Paul Stein's glasses were in the possession of the evidence lab at the SFPD, meaning that law enforcement, the authorities, and uh, the forensics labs, they had Paul Stein's glasses in evidence, so there, there's no possible way that the Zodiac Killer could have taken Paul Stein's glasses, which really makes you wonder, though, because I believe Deborah Perez 
went through DNA testing on the glasses to try and verify that they were indeed Paul Steins. And I mean, I, I really think that that would be so odd if they just had them the whole time and they just could have said, no, they're not Paul Stein's glasses. But um, as far as uh, M. William Phelps goes, I think that he is spot on when he says that Deborah Perez genuinely believed her story because if she didn't believe that her father was actually the Zodiac, how, why on earth would she ever even agree to do DNA testing? Look, forget about the result, but why would she agree to it in the first place if she knew that it was all just a... Um, that was all just a lie and she's just doing it for money. So some people out there genuinely believe these far-out claims. And that was something that I really had to deal with when I was just learning about all of those things that I was talking about before. You know, you know the people who um, are trying to promote books about some really, really far-out political ideology like ecofeminism or something? And I was like, do these people actually believe this stuff? Or are they just saying something because... They want to make a lot of noise to draw a crowd, and then they want to tell people their true message, or maybe they're actual grifters and so on. But the hard thing, and even I, I wrestle with this to this day, but people believe a lot of the things that they actually say, and it's not just as simple as people are lying because they have some type of ulterior motive. And um, Jesse Walker wrote a fascinating book about this called The United States of Paranoia, which talks a lot about conspiracy theories, but he simply just said that People are pattern-seeking individuals. Human beings are pattern-seeking creatures. It has nothing to do with your age, nothing to do with your education level, nothing to do with your IQ. People put pieces of information into patterns that make sense to them, and that's why you'll find somebody who has like a PhD that'll be talking about perhaps the most wild and wacky thing under the sun. Let's say, for example, the Zodiac Killer was an alien from the planet planet Hoova or something like that. And um, the reason why you encounter that is just for that very reason. People put things into patterns because that's how we understand information. But um, uh, to get back to the article here, Michael Newton's relationship with Janice Knowlton in the book Daddy was the Black Dahlia, Newton was apparently happy to embrace and promote Knowlton's absurd story as long as her lies remained subtle and almost plausible. Dennis Kaufman seems to have television reporter Chris Pickle wrapped around his finger, and he has now attracted the support of a university professor in Arizona. See, that would be another example of someone who is um, educated at the postgraduate level that would buy into this um, Jack Torrance thing. And I know that there are some people who listen to this program and think that Jack Torrance is a very credible Zodiac Killer suspect, and I really hate to tell you that he is not, and I give all my reasons why in the debunking video, Zodiac Killer debunking series here on this channel. The professor believes that his geographical analysis of suspected murder sites confirms Kaufman's claims concerning several unsolved crimes. While the professor was happy to add his own endorsement of Kaufman, the professor's university was quick to note that the professor spoke for himself and not the institution. Another man who stayed awake for several days until he became convinced that the Zodiac's letters contained hidden messages that further implicated the already exonerated suspect Arthur Lee Allen. According to the sleep-deprived amateur sleuth, the hidden messages only became visible when viewed on a computer monitor that was tilted at a certain angle. This theorist thought of his 15 seconds of notoriety and discovered that the media was eager to oblige. I don't actually know that one. I'm going to have to uh, look that one up. Maybe I can share some of that next week on Zodiac Monday. Other men and women have come forward with their own claims, and these individuals would have remained anonymous thrill-seekers without media ready to provide a forum for the latest crackpot. 
Steve Hodell entered the world of sensational true crime exploitation with claims that his now-deceased father, Dr. George Hodell, was responsible for the infamous Black Dahlia murder in 1947. Eventually, Hodell's theory appeared in the book Black Dahlia Avenger. While some embraced Hodell's theory as the solution to the mystery, others rightfully noted that Hodell's entire theory hinged on what could only be described as speculation and assumptions. In some instances, Hodell's evidence was discredited. Yet Hodel remained undeterred and now has released his attempt to cast a dark cloud over the memory of his dead father. The book Most Evil, Avenger, Zodiac, and the further serial murders of Dr. George Hodel claims that George Hodel was also the Zodiac Killer. And um, I believe the book is actually Most Evil Part 2 is the easiest way to find that one. But um, as far as the Black Dahlia Avenger case goes, um, I think Steve Hodel makes a very convincing case that his father was the Black Dahlia Avenger. And it's an unsolved case. Of course, I'm not really sure. But definitely, it seems like George Hodel was um, perhaps not a good person at heart. Definitely doing things like pulling strings behind the scenes for the California elites. And I mean, Steve Hodel's narrative, though... You know, like, let's just say hypothetically, if, hypothetically, if George Odell were not the Black Dahlia Avenger, then, um, I still think Steve Odell put in a valiant and honest effort about that particular case. Now, as far as George Odell is a Zodiac Killer suspect, I am absolutely not convinced he was in his 60s at the time, and I know that he may have looked younger. I don't see any evidence of a, a medical doctor being the Zodiac Killer the way that George Hodel was, and um, you're going to have to do a lot more than say that, well, he used to live um, near where another crime was committed, and the body was dumped 500 meters from a street sign that says the word Zodiac, and I mean, that definitely gets you thinking, talking about the murder of Lucilla Lelou in 1967, then he thought of the idea of becoming the Zodiac Killer. You're going to have to do a lot more than that to actually convince someone that your father was the Zodiac. That George Hodel, approximately 60 years old at the time of the Zodiac murders, was in fact to be thrown out the window as Hodel attempted to exploit another unsolved tragedy for personal gain. Some are thrilled to see a new Zodiac book and happily promote Hodel's latest efforts. Once again, the contrast is clear. Anyone who has actually cared about the case would not welcome the publication of another book peddling yet another bad theory about another bad suspect. Once again, so many of these claimed to care about this, seemed far more interested in serving themselves. In 2014, HarperCollins published a book titled The Most Dangerous Animal of All by Susan Mustafa and Gary Stewart. The book claimed that, Stu that Stewart's estranged and conveniently deceased father Earl Van Best was the Zodiac. Well, um, conveniently deceased, I mean, how on earth did Gary Stewart have any ability over when his father was going to die, and, I mean, maybe you're thinking that, oh, what, what, was he just holding on to the idea for, like, 20 years? All right, well, um, today's the day, I suppose. No, I mean, like, um, conveniently deceased father, and, um, I think perhaps what Butterfield is doing to give some credit to him is thinking that, okay, he, uh, thought of the idea after his father had been deceased, because, as, as we say in America, you can't libel a dead man. Stewart's solution relied on handwriting comparisons, which later proved 
to be completely wrong when the handwriting samples attributed to Earl Van Best turned out to be the handwriting of another person. The rest of Stewart's so-called evidence was equally invalid, although he continued to claim that he had produced more evidence than anyone to identify the Zodiac. Authorities were not impressed by Stewart's claims, and Stewart faded from the public view after several desperate public statements attempting to explain the complete collapse of his solution to the mystery. And the um, note about Gary Stewart and Susan Mustafa is... That is a painful attempt at grifting, a painful attempt at a for-profit money grab if we're going to accuse Dennis Kaufman of that, which I do. Um, I would also say that Gary Stewart and Susan Mustafa and the other person involved, Michael Waxel, were, were orchestrating a blatant for-profit scheme. And I really don't know who was pulling all the strings. Was it Susan Mustafa? Was it the publishers? But they had two books out, not just one. The second one was called The End of the Zodiac Mystery by Michael Waxel, which talked about the handwriting analysis, and Michael Waxel says he's a handwriting expert. And it's all baloney. They were total liars. And the FX documentary that examined this material, which I believe is still available on Hulu, identified Gary Stewart as the person whom they have directly caught lying, fabricating the evidence, and misrepresenting the general public about his father, Earl Van Bestas, the Zodiac Killer, to give some pushback to this article about Michael Butterfield. Okay, the handwriting didn't belong to Earl Van Best. The handwriting on the marriage certificate that they tried to say was the Zodiac's handwriting? Sure, that I don't dispute. But I think that Earl Van Best as a Zodiac Killer suspect had the brain for it, and they composed a narrative that while he calls um, all of this evidence here is um, uh, desperate attempts and the so-called evidence was equally invalid, and yes, okay, I mean, but I believe that they created somewhat of a solid psychological profile, just so I'm not being completely nasty to them. They talk about how Earl Van Best was um, someone who was extremely self-educated. I think he, that he was a pure Machiavellian, someone who just thought that he was more intelligent than the rest of society, so he didn't have to follow the rules of said society, and he could just weave his own ways around them, and that he could just um, do whatever he wanted, and he would break the law and have some type of narcissistic justification for it. The way that the Zodiac Killer would do that, and then write in these taunting phone calls... Absolutely, 100%, I do not believe that Earl Van Best was the Zodiac Killer, but he was someone who was of above-average intelligence, but used all of his intelligence for destructive reasons. He had a terrible relationship with his mother, not the best relationship with his father either, however. That is um, a little bit more about underappreciation as opposed to being ashamed of all of his mother's promiscuity and so on, if, in, if, if those details in the book, The Most Dangerous Animal of All, are even true. But, I mean, I just want to be say something nice about Gary Stewart once in my life. Yes, he composed a decent psychological profile. However, though, I've also said very clearly in previous episodes that he says that Earl Van Best was fluent in English, German, and Japanese, and he was raised trilingual in these languages, Yet, there are so many Japanese clues in the Zodiac Killer mystery, yet I'm not seeing an ounce of German language clues, and I've talked about that in some of the previous news reports, so I won't repeat that too much, but 
So, no, I don't think Earl Van Best was the Zodiac Killer. Yes, I think Gary Stewart and Susan Mustafa were operating a con job, and perhaps the publishing houses were involved with that, so to speak, as well. And Michael Waschel, I have no idea if he's, um, I really have only heard a couple interviews with him, and I don't know if he is a blatant liar, part of the fraud, or just some person they found who was um, an active participant and didn't know what was going on. But the whole point is, the books, The Most Dangerous Animal of All and The End of the Zodiac Mystery, are not worth reading. And someone said that it has been uploaded to YouTube. Sure, if you want to read it for free, go for it. It's just, when I say not worth reading, I just mean it's not worth spending your money on. And you can also hear an eight-part book discussion about that here on this channel, Black Box All Night Radio. I also have numerous episodes about Earl Van Best. They're called The Gary Stewart Theory, Michael Waxel's Theory, and The Earl Van Best. Q&A session. And the final part of the article here is, while the men and women of law enforcement work to catch the killer, the media and the public, and most notably the theorists, blame the investigators and cling to pet theories and suspects, innocent men stand accused by crackpots, armed with little more than a three-ring binder filled of contrived coincidences, strained speculation, and nonsense. And that is the conclusion of this article. One more time, if anybody would like the full version. You can get it at ZodiacKillerFacts.com. It is called Zodiac Daddy Issues. And thank you to Michael Butterfield for that, and I hope everybody will at least visit his site once today because he provided all that source material. So um, what do you think about that, people who are, are accusing their fathers of being the Zodiac? Or a lot of these cases are stepfathers and adoptive fathers, such as Dennis Kaufman's stepfather, Jack Torrance, Torrance, excuse me, Jack Torrance um, was a different guy. Jack Torrance was uh, Jack Nicholson's character in The Shining, right? This is Jack Torrance with a different vowel sound. And uh, Guy Ward Hendrickson was not the biological father of Deborah Perez. She, he was her adoptive father. I mean, you can call him a stepfather, but he formally adopted her. She was originally born in Mexico, hence the name Perez. So, um... If there, there are so many suspects that I talked about in there, and Guy Ward Hendrickson, Earl Van Best, Jack Torrance, George Hill Hodel, I'm sure there's something that you're thinking about a few of them. But I would like to switch gears now as far as talking about um, some skepticism. Let's talk about some different types of theories out there. And I've been corresponding with somebody whom I'll simply call by his first name, Bill, who has talked about a rather different Zodiac Killer theory. On the notion of giving everybody a chance, perhaps I'll do a larger segment on Bill's theory, but he had a rather different one because he has a Zodiac killer suspect whom I won't reveal yet. But the interesting part that I will reveal is that he believes that the reason why the Zodiac killer stopped committing crimes was because he was murdered in 1974. And you might be thinking, well, there are Zodiac killer letters that were written in 1974, Right? So, what exactly is going on? Well, Bill believes that the Zodiac Killer's 1974 exorcist letter was authentic. Then, his suspect was murdered, and this man's daughter started writing the letters and wrote several um, Zodiac correspondences, particularly the SLA letter and the Count Marco letter, which I'll be discussing right now. And firstly, um, I have never done a very large segment on the Cal Marco letter, so I thought that this was a good opportunity. And perhaps um, I will do a bigger segment on Bill's theory involving these um, 
multiple participants, so to speak, next week. And the Count Marco letter, as I said, from 1974, reads, Editor, put Marco back in the hellhole from whence it came, dash, he has a serious psychological disorder, dash, always needs to feel superior. I suggest you refer him to a shrink. Meanwhile, cancel the Count Marco column, since the Count can write anonymously, so can I. And this is signed, The Red Phantom, and in parentheses it says, Red with Rage. So, um, firstly, there's some immediate observations that you have. You're probably thinking about this person said that he wants to write anonymously, or she, and then it says it's signed, The Red Phantom. So, anonymous and giving your name perhaps aren't necessarily the same thing. But I do have to recall something that was shared in the book Zodiac Killer Solved by Ray Grant. And when it says the Red Phantom read with rage, that means that the Red Phantom is not this person's true name. Like if Ray Grant were to call himself Red Ray Grant, that doesn't mean that Red Ray Grant is his name. It means that his name is Ray Grant and read with rage. So the Zodiac, or the person who wrote this letter, could be calling themselves the Phantom. And what exactly would that mean? Because, firstly, the Texarkana Moonlight Murders of 1946 involved a perpetrator called the Phantom Killer. Now, was this playing, giving a direct homage to the Phantom Killer? Possibly. The Phantom Killer was a serial killer who targeted lovers' lanes, attacking men and women in cars the way the Zodiac did. The Phantom Killer wore a hood the way that the Zodiac Killer did. Um, very, very big similarities. The Zodiac Killer operated in the fall and the summer, the Phantom Killer operated in the winter and the spring, and both of them committed all of their crimes within a 12-month cycle. The Phantom Killer, as I said, will be doing a larger series, but he only operated over a very short time frame, from February to May of 1946. I mean, okay, so you have February, March, April, and May, but the bulk of the activity happens from the end of February to the beginning of May, so it's really within two months, and then there are some days left over in February and May. So it's um it's it's even a smaller time frame than that of the Zodiac Killer, and rather on par with um that of Jack the Ripper, because Jack the Ripper committed his crimes within a very small time frame as well. That was August thirty first to November ninth of eighteen eighty eight. And I would like to go to an article though about the Count Marco letter, also known as the Red Phantom letter, called Red with Rage from ZodiacCiphers.com. Big thank you to uh, Richard Grinnell. And it says, When we consider the identity of the author of the July 8th, 1974 Red Phantom letter, we have to consider the person they are addressing. And what do they stand for? The letter states, Editor, put Marco back in the hellhole from whence it came. He has a serious psychological disorder. He always needs to feel superior. I suggest you refer him to a shrink. Meanwhile, cancel the Count Marco column. Since the Count can write anonymously, so can I. The Red Phantom, read with rage. The obituary of Mark H. Spinelli began with Mark H. Spinelli, better known as Count Marco, a columnist who gave outrageous advice to women for 15 years. As Count Margo, Mr. Spinelli was a star performer in a circulation war in the 1960s. The Chronicle and the other Bay Area newspapers participated in it. At the height of his fame, he wrote his daily column. Oh, he wrote his column and appeared on a daily television show, wrote three books, won prizes, and developed a huge audience that was either amused or appalled by his words. 
and that was from SFGate, most people were dissatisfied with his newspaper column, and they were disgruntled women appalled with his views. They deemed him to be a male chauvinist and a sexist. So a good case can be argued that the author of The Red Phantom was likely a woman fighting for women's rights. Well, that will give something to uh, Bill's theory there that um, the SLA letter and the Red Phantom letter were written by a woman upset by his perceived superiority complex. On the flip side, it could be that the Zodiac Killer angered by the columnist for putting down women, despite the fact that he had no problem murdering them. Well, also, um, some people just might think that the Zodiac was doing that because he was, he thought the guy was annoying. And that was one thing about the Zodiac Killer in the correspondence is he rarely held back anything that he was thinking, and you really would have to wonder, though, why would he would target somebody who was so irrelevant? And a lot of people have thought about this, that there is a female participant, though, in the Zodiac Killer mystery. I just mentioned Ray Grant, and he um, identifies a female participant who was involved in the planning process named Berta Margulies. And um, I've even brought up that other YouTuber named Aphrodite who just had his solid theory that there are two minds involved, a male mind and a female mind. Another example of this would be um, Don and Betty Harden. Don Harden was the person who cracked the first Zodiac Killer cipher, the 408 cipher, the one that says, I like killing people because it's so much fun. It's even more fun than hunting wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. Cracked by Don and Betty Harden, and Don Harden goes on to become a Zodiac Killer suspect, and they think that him and his wife are involved with all that. I absolutely do not believe that either, and I included Don Harden in the debunking series, but um, it's been widely discussed, let's just say that. His book, Beauty and the Beast, was littered with such distasteful comments toward women such as, Someone once asked me, Do you really believe a husband should beat his wife? And I answered, Yes. Most emphatically, there are times when she should not only be beaten, but kicked when she's down. Dry humor, right? Other examples can be readily found in the newspaper columns running up to the Red Phantom letter of May 8th, shown here in 10 Days of Count Marco by Zodiac researcher Michael Cole. Two such examples are female comics, she says, must play the role of the ugly duckling or the halfwit in order to get laughs. As you heard, I was trying not to laugh right there. I mean, <laughs> I have an open sense of humor. There's nothing wrong with that. The real uglies, of course, are the ones who don't make a living at it. The average American housewife who prowls the public streets with her hair and rollers and stretch pants defying all laws of container control. And besides, if a stewardess can't handle a flippant male passenger, then I don't think she's strong enough to open an emergency door. Sometimes you just have to realize that people have a different meaning. And what happens with these guys like who say stuff like that is... You have to recognize that it's just satire, that people don't mean this stuff literally. They're making fun of something to prove a point, and what, sometimes people use the expression tongue-in-cheek, or it's just, um, it's just meant to be dry humor that isn't super literal. But um, the problem is, though, the only people who are convinced by that explanation are ones who are already somewhat open with their humor. But I would just like to ask you guys that. What do you think about um, the authorship of the Count Marco letter? Do you believe that this is an authentic Zodiac correspondence? And do you think that there is any um, hidden meaning there about the Phantom? Now, I said that it could have come from the Texarkana Moonlight Murders of 1946, but the Phantom could also be from the comics. Now, I do a lot of online trivia, and um, 
of course I'm familiar with The Phantom, right, created by Lee Falk, and um, I used to watch the show Phantom 2040 when I was a kid. That was one of the first cartoons I ever remember watching, and when when it was on, it was on Saturday mornings, like Saturday morning cartoons, and it was the very first cartoon show that would come on. We're talking either like 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning because I was a night owl and an early bird. I don't think I ever did any sleeping at all as a kid. That's why I'm so weird. But I would stay up all night, and then for some reason I'd be the first person awake in the morning, and I would turn on the TV, and there would be this show, Phantom 2040, that would come on. And I didn't truly understand the plot because I was like six years old. But yes, very famous, very famous costumed comic character brought to life in the cartoons. But the reason why I mentioned the trivia boards was I was um, just playing the game once, and one question was, who was the first comic book character superhero to wear a costume? And it said, the Phantom. And I was like, wow, really? The Phantom debuting in 1936. And uh, Superman debuted in 1938, right? Action Comics number one. Now, don't quote me on this one, but I believe Batman debuted in 1939. I mean, as a comic book character, and he was given his own comic book in 1940 under the name Batman. Now, some of you guys out there are probably just about to, like, have your heads explode because you guys know this stuff way better than I do. And if there's one thing that people are sensitive about, it is comic books. I love talking about comic books, but I do not love talking about comic books with people who love talking about comic books because they will just explode over the smallest detail because they're so passionate about it. Yeah, I get it, I get it, I get it, but not everything is a competition. The whole point is that's another famous example of somebody called the Phantom who was around in the decades prior to the Zodiac Killer mystery, and the Zodiac Killer talks a lot about comic books. If I had to make a decision now, I would say the Red Phantom letter is not authentic, but um, what do you think about that? And uh, you can also weigh in on this um, part here about the Zodiac Killer um, talking um, in the voice of a woman. Do you think that the Red Phantom letter was written by a woman? And the final thing that I will leave you guys with for the Zodiac Killer News Report is something that was shared with me by Drew Beeson, who found um, saying found this online, saying that some guy on Reddit found this, and it says from August 11th of 1969 that there was a sniper attack at Lake Berryessa. Remember, the Lake Berryessa stabbing occurred on October... Oh my goodness. The Lake Berryessa stabbing occurred on September 27th of 1969, Please excuse me for that. September 27th, and this is August 11th. Sniper at Berryessa reported, Sheriff's deputies, highway patrolmen, and fish and game wardens were unsuccessful in apprehending reported snipers in the Lake Berryessa area Sunday afternoon. Law enforcement officers received several reports that a person was shooting at bathers along the beach on the lakeshore in the late afternoon. The sniper was traveling in a 1963 model car. Witnesses reported when last seen, he was headed toward the Monticello Dam. However, a thorough search of the area failed to turn up the alleged sniper or the vehicle, officers said. Now, what do you make of that? August 11th, this is more than a month before the Lake Berryessa stabbing. And a lot of people point out that the Zodiac Killer operated in July of 1969, September of 1969, but not August. And why on earth is that? Well, is it possible at all 
that the Zodiac attempted a crime on August 11th of 1969 and was just unsuccessful, that the Zodiac was trying to do something different, missed the shots, and then on, in September decided to stab the victims because he knew he wouldn't miss, not to mention attacking Paul Stein in the taxi cab on October 11th of 1969, also in a way in which he would not miss. And I was reading the article from Michael Butterfield in Zodiacular Facts earlier, and he even talked about this in his post on that website, 10 Myths of the Zodiac Killer, that the Zodiac was not that good of a marksman. So says Butterfield. I mean, it's definitely some food for thought, but based on all of the uh, vagueness around this, I can't really make a comment if it's Zodiac-related or not. And it definitely seems like the Zodiac Killer could have committed crimes such as the Swindle murders in 1964, where the victims were shot at from a distance. And I personally believe in 1963 with the Domingo Sedwards murders, the, the people, the victims, Robert Domingos and Linda Edwards were running away from the killer, and he gunned them down, firing 20, 26 shots with a twenty-two caliber gun. So I think that... Um, you know, it's possible this could have some involvement, or this could be just an unrelated maniac. Here is the moral of this episode. There are a lot of maniacs in California. There are a lot of maniacs in America, and sometimes not all of these crimes are connected, but we see this stuff in California all the time, and one of the reasons is because of the highways and because of the access that people have to rural areas that are close to cities but still very secluded. So what do you think about this one, this August 11th attack where a sniper is shooting bullets at people on the beaches of Lake Berryessa? Weigh in anything, weigh in in the comments section down below, share anything that you would like. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box, and there is always blackboxnid88 on Instagram for the bonus podcast, and I will see you over there. Until next time.